Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Samuel Ellis. Samuel is a distinguished figure in the intersection of business strategy, transformation, and innovation within the automotive and mobility sector. His remarkable journey extends from a career in corporate restructuring and accountancy to leading MNC Sachi Innovation and from co-founding Project Automobility to launching Carfu, an impartial information comparison site for all types of vehicles. Welcome, Samuel. Thank you for joining us. Really excited to have you here. I think this conversation today will be a little bit different than some of the others that we've had up to this point on the podcast, taking a slightly different perspective on mobility, really looking at the consumer, I think, really to a great degree. So really excited to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Julian. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you very much. Ken. So could you share with our listeners your current role? So what are you doing currently? And basically, your journey from your early career in corporate restructuring and accountancy to now being a prominent figure in the automotive and mobility UX sector. So my job title here at Carfu is CEO, but I'm also one of the three co-founders. So the two other co-founders, one, uh, Dominic Thomas, our COO, and another, John Chandler, who's our CTO. So that's the kind of co-founding team here. And so as CEO, obviously responsible for the strategic direction of the company. The reality is the vast majority of my role, particularly at the moment, as we're heading towards the launch of, of Carfit formally and the comparison tools we're going to get into, uh, my role is very product focused. And so there's a huge UX component of the work that we've really been doing over, in actual fact, about five years. And so before we get to what Carfu does, I think you're right, it's probably quite useful just to understand that journey that I've been on from a career perspective, because it really has actually informed the work that I've ended up doing now. You know, it's been a 20-year journey to get here. And I don't think when I started, I thought I'd end up here. But I think the great thing about it is everything I've done has shaped to what we're doing now. So I went to university here in the UK and I decided to follow my father's footsteps. My father worked in the city, as it's known here. So he was an accountant. And I just thought it seemed like a great sort of base level to understand how business works. So I trained as an accountant here in the UK and I worked in corporate restructuring. And what that really means is we were working with distressed companies. So companies that were really struggling and, and often having to try and turn them around or put them into liquidation. And I think that one of the things that I really learned about that experience, I don't know if you've seen the film Up in the Air with George Clooney, that was my job. I was a slightly a significantly less good looking version of George. And I wasn't flying anywhere because it's the UK. So I was often driving places and I was making people redundant. And I think one of the things that was really fascinating about that role is 
one, I learned about money and how business works and you know how to make a spreadsheet and really had to start thinking about things in a much more financially literate way than I had done perhaps at university. But I think the other side was that, you know, I saw people, you know, in real struggles and really concerned about money and worried about what they might do, bearing in mind I was the person often making them redundant. So I got into a lot of very deep conversations about the challenges that that redundancy might bring, what that might do to their finances, and, and ended up having lots of conversations about how might you save money? What could you do? So that was the kind of first part of my career. And I'll be honest, it was quite bleak. It wasn't the happiest time of my life, as you can imagine. And I just realized that I wanted to do something just a bit more fun. And my brother worked in advertising. And I remember we were discussing our sort of paychecks at the end of one month. And whilst I was getting paid a lot more, I was pretty miserable. He was getting paid slightly less than me, but was really happy. And I thought, I'm just going to go and do that. So I managed to convince an advertising agency to take me on. And then uh, sort of 10, 15 years later, ended up head of MC Saatchi Innovation. If you've not heard of MC Saatchi, I know it's a very well-known advertising agency, probably the best-known advertising agency in the UK. And it was founded by two brothers, Morris and Charles Saatchi, who are now sort of advertising legends. So they've got uh, the Saatchi Gallery here in London. I think the Saatchi Gallery is all over the world. There's agencies all over the world. So it's an absolutely listed company, absolutely enormous. And I was, I was very privileged to effectively grow up through that company and do a variety of different roles. The consistent thing that I did, it didn't matter if I was working on a PR campaign or an advertising campaign or a, or a CRM campaign or a website campaign. So our agency was a multidisciplinary agency where a client, what they would do is, unlike some advertising agencies, where a client would come to us and say, right, I need to increase sales. And we would say, well, let's go make a TV ad. We didn't really do that. We just said, well, let's see what tools we've got available to us. And so we were very much more a sort of creative problem solving company. And we didn't define that particularly well, I think, at the time, but we certainly became quite well known for it. And the thread that then ran through that was that I always had a car client. So I'm very into my cars. I don't know why. It's one of those things that I it's completely irrational. I didn't plan on being a car person, but I've always found cars fascinating. I've always found them interesting. And I actually lived as, um, I don't know if you've heard of the magazine Autocar, which is a sort of pretty big consumer title here in the UK. I actually lived down the road from Autocar and I used to walk past it every day. And I think that was probably the catalyst for getting involved with cars. So I learned a lot about cars simply from walking past their office. So I also had a car client. So I've worked with BMW, with Mini, with Jaguar, with Honda, with Honda motorbikes, all kinds of different brands. And in my role at MSC Saatchi, I worked with Jaguar Land Rover very closely. I was actually pretty much seconded there and spent three days a week up in their offices in Gaydon with their marketing team. And that was an amazing experience. So I spent a lot of time working with the dealers, a lot of time working with the digital marketing team, all sort of around different challenges that the business had in marketing. And that was uh, one of the reasons we got into doing what we're doing at Carfu. So we can, well, I'm sure we can touch on that in a bit. And then from Jaguar Land Rover, I decided I wanted to go back to school, do an MBA. So I went to Imperial College Business School to do my exec MBA. And that's really where the sort of focus on mobility really took hold. I was, one of our modules was, you know, to go and explore an industry. And I started researching the mobility industry, so to speak, and started to look for opportunities. And throughout the time at MC Saatchi, I'd also been investing in startups. So I was reasonably aware of that world and was quite interested in it and had been a reasonably successful angel investor. And so where I then got to was, I'm interested in this world of mobility. I know a little bit about marketing. I know quite a lot about cars. I know a bit about accountancy. I've now learned a lot of skills at business school about how to maybe go and start a company of my own. Why don't I go and do that? So I convinced Dominic, my co-founder, to jump in with me. And we started to go out and research, take that initial research we did in the world of mobility. And that is effectively that research project turned into the business that is now Carfit. So that's all super interesting. I am also, as you can imagine, you know, hosting a, a mobility related podcast. I'm also really into cars, huge car fan, vehicle fan that really resonates with me. 
So just as a, because I think that's a perfect lead in to my next question. What is car food? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is, like what you all are hoping to do with it? You know, just the nuts and bolts of what you all are doing. So the idea came out of a few different conversations. The main conversation, though, was an argument I had with my brother, the same brother that convinced me to leave my lucrative job in the city. He rang me out of the blue and said, hi, Sam, I've got a £5,000 budget to buy a car. Can you sort one out for me? And basically hung up on me. That was the length of the phone. I was like, and I, being you know a nice younger brother, just went, sure. Started researching cars, thinking, what can I get for £5,000? And I didn't really think that much about it. I just started looking for a car from him. And then I remember I got to a point where I, the search wasn't really going as well as I was hoping. And I was sitting there really thinking, about, why does he need a car? Right, This is a single man. Right, At the time, he was living zone in a flat in central London, in zone one, like the equivalent of living you know, in Manhattan. Right, If you lived in New York, he rarely left London. I would say he rarely left sort of five miles of his house. You know, that would be a big trip for him. Not that he's, you know, an introvert. You know, he just, there was everything he needed was on his. And I remember calling him back and saying, I don't really understand why you need a car. I said, I don't mind looking for you before, but I don't really get it. And he was like, don't be an idiot, little brother. Just buy me a car and hung up on me again. And so what I did is, it was the first real, I'd say, creative use of the accountancy skills that I had is I sat down and built him a financial model, which looked at what he could do with that £5,000. And one of the things was buy a car. And what I realized is that actually what I was really doing was starting to build a total cost model. And we'll talk a bit about the industry sort of total cost of ownership, total cost of use, maybe a bit later. But I was building a total cost of ownership model for him. So I did it on a used car. I did it on what would happen if he got a car on a lease. Okay, so if he didn't sort of spend all that money up front, he just used that five grand over a period of time. I did all the running costs. So looking at things like tax, looking at insurance, looking at fuel, looking at things like parking costs. And I also looked at, and I started to then compare. So once we bought something, what if he leased something? What happens if he joined a car club, right? You know, what happens if he joins, and at the time it was Zipcar. What happens if he just has a budget for Uber? I went back to him to say, look, I've actually done a slightly different way. And this is the financially where this is all ending up. And I said, I don't think you should buy a car. I think you should just join a car club. I think that's probably the best idea for you based on what you've told me. And he was quite surprised, but that's what he did. He looked at the, the numbers and just on a pure sort of financial basis, it took quite a lot of the emotion out of, I need a car, I want a car. You know, it's just that thing that you do to go, hmm, turns out I don't need one. Really, do I? And actually, I'm going to, the thing that got him was he was going to save a lot of money. So it was the financial element that was really, really interesting. So really quick, just to interject, can you explain to our listeners like car club? So we have Zipcar here in the States, but I wonder, is there like a little bit of difference between, you know, imagining based on what you're saying is some sort of shared ownership type approach? Absolutely. Spot on. So you would join a, so I've got one in my local area here. So I live in Southwest London. Okay. There's a car club here that I can join. You pay a monthly fee and there's effectively just cars scattered all over my local area. A lot of them have the local authority here have put together uh, certain designated spaces where they can park. Okay. Where you can leave them. Other bits of the local authority allow you to park them kind of anywhere you want. Okay. And so that fee often includes the parking. You generally have to pay for the gas, for the petrol that goes into it, but you pay that monthly fee and you can use those cars you know, up to a certain mileage or up to a certain maybe an amount of times, you know, a week or a month. And there's all kinds of different models and they're relatively popular. 
I would say now. And they are, there's quite a few different ones. There have been some struggles. There have been a number of businesses that have left the market here in, in London and have focused in, in Europe where the model seems to me to have been significantly more successful, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. So that was an example I gave him. I said, look, you can buy a car outright for £5,000, I said, but you're still going to have to pay all of these running costs for it. If you joined a car club, you're only really going to be paying for the car whenever you need it. You're only going to be putting fuel in it whenever you have to. And you've got none of the ongoing associated hassles that you're going to have to think about. So, and it was understanding those running costs in particular and showing him all of the things he would have to think about those essential running costs so he was going to have to pay tax he was going to have to pay insurance he was going to have to you know put fuel into it there's a lot of other running costs that maybe you necessarily don't think about but you do have to worry about so an example i always use is your windshield right statistically you will get a crack in your windscreen or your windshield that needs repairing every three years your one of your tires will need replacing every three years you need to clean that car right you don't need to clean a car club car you know you don't need to clean an uber if you get in it so it was just actually saying you need to think about this decision in a slightly broader way and maybe include some costs don't necessarily immediately come to mind and so that's probably an overly long answer of you know what is a car club and but i think that was kind of where we started to go with that conversation so car food. So I think I'm getting it now. So you're looking at really the total cost of ownership. So all of those sometimes small, sometimes big things. I don't know necessarily whether I would say tires are necessarily a small thing, especially as expensive as they can be, especially for larger vehicles. But you're looking at the total cost of ownership, right? Like all the things that don't necessarily immediately jump out to people when they're thinking about, oh, I'm going to go buy this, you know, new car, it's super exciting, you know, but what about tires, your windshield, cleaning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So does Carfu like do that type of comparison? Like talk to me a little bit more about what Carfu, how Carfu helps like in this regard in terms of helping in those decision making. You've got the gist of it spot on, but I'll elaborate and explain. So from that conversation, that was the basis really for the company that we're building now. And what we've done is we've taken that initial idea and gone a bit crazy with it. Okay. And I know the viewers behind people that watch this back necessarily just listen to it. But behind me is my background. You can see a host of different vehicles. Okay. And that's where this, we think this actually gets really exciting when you start thinking beyond just cars. So what Carfu does is a normal consumer comes to the website. Okay. In future, I think we'll have an app based variant of it, a bit like Zillow, where you can go on the website, but you've also got an app. It'll be a very similar experience. We just have added functionality. They come to the website and what they do is they tell us about their mobility needs. Okay. So that might be about their current usage. Like what are they doing at the moment? How are they getting around? Right. Where are they located? Right. What are the things that are important to them? We then ask them some questions about money and their budget. So we talk about, you know, what might you be paying currently for your car? Right. What do you think you're spending a month on getting around and around on different types of transport? And then we talk to them about some preferences around different types of vehicles. So an example, the one I always, I always use is, you know, would you ever ride a motorbike? Okay. A lot of people would not ride a motorbike. So that's an example of some of the questions we ask around preferences. So we just get an understanding of what people might be open to, but we try and leave it relatively open. We try and encourage people to say, look, answer these questions, but try and have a bit of an open mind here. And so we take all of that information, all of those questions, all of those answers. And what we then do is we've been working with a large number of different brands, so vehicle brands, and all kinds of other data suppliers and partners and running cost partners. So we've effectively got this massive database of all kinds of different vehicles. So everything from cars all the way down to electric scooters and everything in between. So that's vans, 
pickup trucks, motorcycles, mopeds, scooters, bicycles, you name it. We don't care how they're powered. We don't care if you're putting gas in it, if you're putting diesel, if you're putting hydrogen in it, if you're putting, if it's an electric car, if it's a hybrid car, that's, you know, it's a plug-in hybrid car. We don't care about the power source. And then we've then gone out and spoken to lots of providers of these vehicles. So that might be a car dealer. It might be a local bike shop for bike. It might be a leasing provider for a pickup. Okay. So we take those consumers' questions and answers. We've then got this great big database of all kinds of different vehicles, all kinds of ways you can access them. And what we do is we then make recommendations. And that is where the total cost of ownership or total cost of use calculation comes in. What we do is we make these calculations over a period of time and we include over 30 running costs. We don't include every running cost for every type of vehicle, but there are 30 running costs that we can do these calculations for. And so what we then what we then do is we then present back to our users a recommendation of what they should do, okay? And we do it on a total cost of use basis because what it allows you to do is compare diverse options on a like-for-like -like basis. So the classic example I use, if you take this car example that my brother used, right? So on our platform, you will be able to look at a new car on subscription, a used car on finance or via a loan, you know, maybe an old car you could just buy in cash. You can look at picking something up on a lease. You could look at a shared scheme. You can look at a budget for Uber. Or maybe actually based on what you've told us, we could say, you know what, a cargo bike actually suits your needs just as well as a small car. And so that's the important thing to us. We're agnostic on the vehicles that we recommend. We're agnostic on the way you can access them. And we present those results using total cost of use. So you can compare things and actually really understand that's really interesting. It sounds like you're basically like you have all of this data, right, on transportation, mobility, you know, what it's going to cost. I can imagine that this is really a massive database that really kind of catalogs all of this different type of data. So you're really presenting to the user really complex or to some degree of complexity financial information. And I would imagine that it's somewhat challenging to really communicate that in a straightforward way. Your background is in accounting. So, you know, my background is not in accounting. I do have an MBA because I just like learning things. Even with that, I could imagine that, you know, some of what you're presenting, depending on how you're presenting it, may be a little bit difficult for consumers to actually ingest or, um, you know, consume. So how do you really translate this complex financial information into really an intuitive and user-friendly experience for the end user? You know, how do you take this complex information? Because I can imagine with all of the information through comparisons that users are being presented with, that it might be somewhat overwhelming, right? So how do you basically translate that to where it's user-friendly and understandable? It's a great question. And to be honest, that is effectively our entire company. Our job is to make all this complex information simple for people. So we've done that in a number of different ways. And I would say, so the first thing that we focused on was the questions that we asked people. So we set us the goal at the start of this whole process, which is we said, we need to design a question set, a consumer-friendly question set, so people can enter in information. But our goal was nobody should ever have to go and look up any information to be able to do this, okay? So our goal was, I don't want to get up off the sofa, right? And I don't know about you, there's there's a lot of websites I go to where I suddenly have to go, oh no, I need this document. I need my passport number or I need my driving license or I need X or I need Y. And our initial goal was, we need to make sure we design questions that anyone can answer. And so a lot of that, we fundamentally, we just wrote up a load of different questions 
And we went out and we tested it to death amongst hundreds, probably lost track now, thousands and thousands of people, different iterations of those question sets, different ways of asking those questions. But also, you know, one of the things we really learned was that it was often less about the question that we asked. It was sometimes more about the nuance of the answer. And a lot of people wanted additional help content. So we've invested a lot of time in making sure that if someone isn't 100% sure of the question, they've got the tools to better understand maybe what we're getting at. And we're actually at a point now where, you know, every single person can get easily get through the questions. There's no issues there. But we found that having the sort of reassurance of the help content alongside it made a big difference. So that was the that was the first part was about designing a question set that people could use. The sort of flip of that was we actually need certain data to actually power the tool. It's the whole calculation set, right? We need to know things like how many miles do you do a year, like roughly. So a lot of the question set and that design wasn't just necessarily about the consumer. It was also saying, well, this is the data we need. What questions do we need to ask? Is there a better way of asking that question in as user-friendly manner as we can? And we got a lot wrong at the beginning. You know, the initial question set we had is so far away from what we have now because of that iterative testing process. And I think also the other part of that was making sure that we tested with a diverse set of groups. So you mentioned you're into cars, okay? The first question set, any car enthusiast would have ate, right? They would have had no problems whatsoever. When we took it to sort of family, suburban families, you know, kids under the age of five, sort of group of young mums, we realized that they just didn't have all of the knowledge to be able to answer those things particularly quickly. But we also, and you mentioned some of your research that you do, you know, we looked at this from a sort of diversity, from an inclusion angle and from, from a sort of disabled person's angle as well. So we started to, you know, and that was for us, that's been a really interesting, and to be honest, a really fascinating challenge because we're doing, I still think we're doing a bad job of it, which is we spent some time and we went out and we spoke to some disabled people to talk about what we were doing. And the questions that are required to address a lot of their needs, we weren't really getting right. And we're still not getting right at the moment. And that's partly because what we're doing is so massive, we have to sort of focus quite a lot of our efforts. But there's some really interesting challenges around making recommendations around vehicles to people with different kinds of disabilities. And we've only just scratched the surface of that problem. And effectively, what we've done is we've said, we know how big a project that's going to be. But it's also important that we, if we do it, we can't sort of half-assed, we've got to do it properly. So we've parked that at the moment. And what we're doing is going out and doing additional focus groups to go and talk to people about those challenges to make sure when we start that project, we actually think in a really good place. So the bit you talked about was that sort of complexity of information. I'll give you a, a great example of when we started. So like you say, this is effectively a big spreadsheet that we need to make absolutely, you know, person off the street understand. And uh, when we first built it, one of the things that you can imagine is if you're an accountant and you make a spreadsheet and there's a negative number in it, right? So if you think having a car and running a car, it's just money going out. Okay. And a negative number in a spreadsheet is usually designated with a minus next to it, or it's in red. And I remember when we first started working with UX designer, a chap called uh, Tom Butler, I remember when we sent him the sort of first iteration and we said, right, this is how we think the results should look. And I think he came back to us within five minutes and he's like, guys, this is a sea of red. He said, all I see is red. All I see are negative numbers. This is a financial disaster. And he was asking us, he said, are these numbers real? He said, this looks like the worst financial decision any human being can make. And we were like, no, this is a real example of what it would cost. I think the cost was to run a Land Rover Discovery over a three-year period. And he couldn't believe it. And what, so that was one of the things that we learned very, very quickly was that there's a real challenge in showing total cost of use because it's quite scary. 
And the numbers that you see, the amount of times I've actually lost track of the amount of times that whenever we sort of build a new iteration or we add in some new running costs, it'll start, you know, the tool will start outputting numbers. And our team, even our team regularly don't believe it. We look at it and go, oh, there must be a mistake. Maybe one of the calculations is off. That can't be right. And we've, and it very rarely is. We actually find out that, you know, that's the reality actually of running. There's so many hidden costs that are associated with all kinds of different vehicle types that actually these things are very expensive. That was one of the real and continues to be an ongoing challenge, which is how do you effectively present really quite a negative number to somebody that's coming into this process? I think you sort of mentioned, you know, you go and buy a car, there's a real emotional angle to it. It's exciting. You know, maybe it's $200 a month, you know, and you can have a brand new car. That's exciting and it's emotional and you want to get into it. You know, we come along and we go, well, it's not $200 a month, is it? It's $800. Because you need to factor in, you're going to lose $200 a month in depreciation every month for the next three years. You know, you need to fuel it. You've not thought about your insurance. You've not thought about your gas prices, right? We're actually presenting quite a negative picture to people. And so that's been a really interesting challenge for us to go, right, how do you present a really quite damning financial assessment, but still make it interesting so that people progress? And so and so we've come up with a few ways. We think we've come up with a few ways around that to kind of change the narrative around it. So it's not necessarily a financial disaster. It's more about understanding and comparing against different options and actually understanding the more the sort of the depth about how you can reduce your downside risk and looking at things from a different way. So we've got we've built a few specific things I can talk about if you want about how we've maybe addressed some of those challenges. So a couple of things that makes me that leads me to think about really. One is when you talk about the picture that you're basically presenting to people, I can imagine, you know, if I'm super excited, like I mentioned, I'm into vehicles. I really like SUVs and luxury vehicles because I'm a glutton for punishment, you know, to a great degree. I know they're, you know, really expensive and et cetera, but I just like my cars. But I would imagine that if I was a user and I was really excited about purchasing, like I really like the Range Rovers. I don't know how expensive they are in the UK, but they're the new one, the Land Rover Range Rover is about 200,000 US dollars, right? So super expensive in terms of purchasing one. So I would imagine if I was someone who had the money to basically purchase that or thought I had the money to basically purchase that, and I was super excited about purchasing it, and I go to your site and I basically put in the information and do a comparison. And it basically tells me that I'm going to have to, like, my actual expense of owning that vehicle is the equivalent of, let's just say something, you know, over the top is the equivalent of like $4,000 a month, or, you know, more than that, you know, when we look at depreciation, and that may not even be a wrong number. I know I'm just kind of guesstimating, may not even be a wrong number. Once we look at maintenance, depreciation, and everything else, I question, or I don't question it. I think what I find interesting is, and what I wonder is, are people willing to listen to that type of information? Because a lot of times I feel like, especially through the type of research that I do, people don't necessarily want to know. Like when people want to do something, they just want to do it, right? They don't necessarily want to be dissuaded from doing that thing that they are really emotionally excited about doing it. So they have this emotional excitement and people have a connection, at least here in the States, have a connection to their cars, right? So they're really excited. They have like all this excitement about buying this vehicle and then they go to your site and put in the information. It's like $4,000. Have you really experienced that? Like, is that a thing that you've come across where people are like really resistant to this information? Or, you know, how are people basically approaching this information when you basically give them what fundamentally are facts? 
Absolutely. And it's actually, it's a problem for us. We've known that from day one, because how do people view this information? The answer is with horror. The first time they see the calculations, first up, people don't believe them, right? And then when they spend, you know, more than 10 seconds looking at it, they go through it all bit by bit and they go, huh, that is bad, isn't it? There's an interesting emotional journey we found that people go on. There are some people, like you say, they don't want to go on a site like this because they just don't want to know, right? So we've lost some of those people. We've accepted that, okay? There are some people that they just don't want to know, and that's fine. What we've found so far is that particularly amongst a slightly older audience, and when I say slightly older, I'm going to lump myself in there. I mean, just joined, just turned 40. That older ones, once you've done this a few times, right, you become much more aware of those costs. And you become much more cognizant of them. And yes, you still get excited about getting a new car, whether it's a, a new to you car or a brand new car, you still get excited about it. But you are much more aware of the problems that come with that vehicle. So what we found is that people start this journey quite emotionally. So they might see a car, you know, they'll be driving on the highway, they'll see a car they like, they go off and they start researching, this is great. And then what we found in our research when people come and try the tools and things that we've been building is effectively what we often do is we give them a bit of a reality check, but it's not a bad reality check. It's often, you know, somebody called our tool the ultimate justifier for making a, an expensive decision. Because what we actually do is we really help them understand some of the complexities, but also show them ways they can save money. You know, so and this is where this idea of different access types starts to come in. If you know you're going to get a vehicle like this, so like you said, let's pick that Range Rover. Right? If you really, really want, what we can do is we show you all of those costs quite quickly, but we also then show you what's the best way to get it. Should you take out a loan and do it, right? Should you get it on a subscription directly from them? Should you maybe work with a lease broker? Is there a way that you can do it tax efficiently, maybe through your company or through your employer? So we actually show people that comparison, that relative comparison and how that looks. And the thing that people get really interested about is particularly we've got a concept that we call net position, which is actually what's the financial position I'm going to be in at the end of this decision, right? So you come into this decision, maybe, you know, take your example, you've got a current SUV, but you want a Range Rover, okay? You'll probably trade that vehicle in at your car dealer, okay? So you'll offset some of that $200,000 cost. You might put some money down as a deposit, and then you might run it first, you know, sort of three years. And then at the end of that period, you, you're either going to roll into a new deal or you're going to sell that vehicle. And so what we show people is we show, look, where you came in, what was that initial number like? And then your sort of cost as you go over that period, but you get some of that money back at the end, dependent on what you've done. And then it's about showing people that total cost over that period of time and also the net position that they end up in and using that as a comparison metric, particularly that older audience, they seem to really like it, right? They're really interested in not comparing on what's this going to cost me a month, like cash out, What's this actually costing me a month from a net point of view? So we have, you know, a cost per week, a cost per mile over the life cycle of that vehicle in that ownership period that, or access period that you're going to have it. And we found that that older audience, they really, really appreciate that. They find that fascinating. So you're absolutely right. We lose some people, they just find it scary and a bit too much. We then, this amazing sort of older audience who find it fascinating. So people, and when I say older as well, that's predominantly, I think, where this is going to land really, really well. And that's from our research. What, what is interesting is we do pick up audiences in other areas as well. Because one is sometimes people coming into this for the first time, if you've maybe only ever used a car club where you've lived in the city and you've moved out, as has happened a lot here, you know, due to the pandemic, suddenly you go, okay, I've got to now look at getting a car. Actually, there's some reassurance in somebody telling you, look, this is actually the reality of what that cost is going to look like. And particularly here in the UK at the moment, you know, it's a challenging economic time globally in the UK in particular. You know, we talk about cost of living crisis here. There's actually some reassurance in people really understanding all of those outgoings. And they fit, it actually helps you make become more 
comfortable. One of our beta testers, he calls our tool the justifier. He's got sort of access to a version of it that he can play with. And whenever he's looking at buying a car that he knows his wife will not approve of whatsoever, he says, can you do me a calculation so I can tell her that it makes financial sense? So that's that's the other side to this that's getting really interesting. So even things like car enthusiasts, right? I want to know, is it actually a financially good decision? So what often happens is they start on an emotional journey about what they want. They come to our site and they get this sort of burst of rationality. But what we actually do is we end up tipping them over the edge by going, we tip them back into emotion because they go, actually, I can justify this. And that emotional aspect at the end sort of tips them over. So absolutely, some people it's terrifying and they see it and they don't want to know and they run away. Others are using it as a tool to help make often a better decision than the one they were initially going to make. And even potentially to find a different vehicle or different way of accessing it that they didn't even know about. There's an element there that we found people were really interested in, which is, you know, a lot of people don't even know that you can get a car on a subscription, as an example. They just don't know that. So, you know, they've got a subscription to Spotify and Netflix. Can I have a car? You know, they might have had a lease, but suddenly an idea of a subscription where they don't pay for anything apart from the fuel that goes into the vehicle, you know, they don't even know that's an option. They don't know about some of the car clubs. There's a localized element to this as well, which is, you know, the choice, you know, for you and where you live and the choice where I live, we might have actually have very different choices about what vehicles might be available to us and what different companies might be providing those vehicles to us. You know, great example I always use here in the UK is Zipcar, right? The last time I checked, Zipcar's been here for a long time. It's still only in 14 locations, you know, and I think from a size of country point of view, if you look at it like that, it, it would hardly even got out of South Carolina, right? Relative to the rest of the UK. It doesn't have that many locations. Maybe it's doing better since I last checked. I think it was only 14. So a lot of the the answers that we give you are quite dependent on your location. So, you know, and of course, it's dependent on your budget, depends on what you need. But there's a localized element to this too. One of the things I didn't mention, which I probably should have done is we've talked, when I talk about total cost of use, the bit we've talked about so far is the financial side. The other part of Carfu is the environmental side. So we've built our own vehicle lifecycle environmental model so that we can help people understand the environmental impact of that choice over time as well. Okay, so not just the emissions that come from use, but also looking at things like the production of that vehicle so looking at the delivery of that vehicle to you and then looking at the sort of end of life as well so helping people actually understand the financial and environmental trade-off simultaneously so that we can try to nudge people towards more sustainable vehicles if we can we're quite agnostic about that we don't preach to people that you need to go and buy an electric car we just say look here's the numbers it's completely up to you what you do we care about your needs and matching and, and meeting them no, that was all wonderful. You know, I would imagine when we were talking about the numbers perhaps being scary, potentially, I would imagine that for those, there's a growing movement towards financial literacy, at least here in the United States, I think in the West generally, just a growing movement towards financial literacy. So I would imagine that a tool like yours would be like a critical tool in the tool belt, given how much money people normally spend on transportation and mobility. I would imagine that your tool would be very useful in terms of helping people make decisions about where to spend money in terms of satisfying their transportation and mobility needs. I have tons more questions. Unfortunately, we are right at time. So this has been a really interesting dialogue. I like to wrap up by you know asking one of three questions. So I'm going to give you the first question that I normally ask. So in the automotive industry, if you could take anyone to lunch, anyone in the automotive industry to lunch, anywhere in the world, who would you take to lunch and why? Because there's two aspects to it. There's my Carfu hat, which is I sit here and who do I want? Which brand do I want on the platform? Should probably take them for lunch and pitch them. The person I would most like go to lunch with is Christian Koenigsegg, who runs the supercar manufacturer in Sweden. The reason for that is 
I think he's built a wonderful business. I'm constantly amazed that you get people that say, I can build a car better than a global manufacturer and then do it. And there's very few people, I think, in the world that can say that they've done that. Horatio Pajani and Christian are probably the only two. And I just think that it's so ambitious making your own car. And the fact that both, I mean, I wouldn't say they're interchangeable. And I I think I picked Christian because he popped into my head. I went to the Pajani factory recently. But I think just that idea of just the biggest job in the world and to not only do it, but succeed. And then not only succeed, also to move it on and do some amazing engineering work around it too. I think, I just think he's a, a fascinating person to speak to and to learn from. Yeah, I think both of those companies do some really interesting, as an engineer, I think they do some really interesting engineering work. I've watched documentaries on both of those companies, and I think they're both truly amazing. So really insightful answer. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And with that, we will wrap up. Thank you all for watching design or listening to, I should say. If you are watching on YouTube, that's great as well. But thank you all for you know watching or listening to Designing for Movement. Have a great day. That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on designing for movement, the UX for Mobility podcast.